The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the Psalms. Psalm 103, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 18 this morning. The word of the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 46. We'll be reading through verse 50 this morning, which is also the end of the chapter. The word of our God. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. If you look at most families, all the children look a great deal alike. Of course, there's an obvious exception to this rule, and that's when some of the children have been adopted. And that's the way we got into the family of God. The Lord adopted us in Jesus Christ. And therefore, if you look at a photograph of humanity, you cannot pick out the Christians by how they look. You cannot pick out the Christians by which language they speak or how rich or how poor they are. For Jesus Christ is redeeming a vast multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and language who have nothing in common with each other except for Jesus. Well, that's not quite right. 
Because we have Jesus in common, we all have God as our Father, and we are all filled with the same Holy Spirit. And therefore, you can pick out Christians by the way we love our Father in heaven and by the way that we love one another. Furthermore, since Jesus came not simply to save us from hell, but to save us from our sins, you can pick out Christians by the way that we live. As Jesus says in this morning's passage, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We're going to look at this morning's passage under three main headings. First, Jesus had a family. Second, Jesus has a family. And third, the family photo. Let me give those to you again. First, Jesus had a family. Second, Jesus has a family. And third, the family photo. We begin with the fact that Jesus had a family. Uh, that should be obvious enough. You open up the gospel according to Luke, and we begin with um, Mary's uncle and aunt, Zechariah and Elizabeth, as God is going to give them a child in their old age, John the Baptist. And through marriage, they will become part of Jesus' family. John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. And that story about Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist is beautifully interwoven with the story of Mary and Joseph as Mary gives birth through a supernatural conception to Jesus. They're in a family together. And you know, we see with Jesus' family, with Joseph and Mary, is that they had struggles like other Jewish families would have had. And in fact, their struggles were significantly worse than most. Uh, the story of Jesus' birth is just a beautiful story. Right? We even have the angels singing, glory to God in the highest, and, and peace on earth to those on whom the Father's favor rests. But that beautiful story is interrupted with a very dark story of Herod, who kills all the children two years and younger in an effort to wipe out this threat to his throne to kill Jesus. And so in the middle of the night, Joseph has to take Jesus and marry his wife, that's Jesus' family, and flee to Egypt just to keep the family safe. And eventually they'll return, and as we see in this morning's passage, they're going to have more children. In fact, they're going to have quite a few more children. That's the way it was very common in the ancient world. And we're told that Jesus has both brothers and sisters. Now, we're not told how many sisters Jesus has, but both Matthew and Mark use the term plural sisters, which means he had at least two. And there's an expression about the crowd talking about his family saying, don't we know all of his sisters? Which actually suggests there's more than two. And both Matthew and Mark name four uh, brothers of Jesus, right? Four other sons that Joseph and Mary would have. Now let me give you this passage from Matthew chapter 13 that we'll look at in just a few weeks. Uh, Lord willing, where the crowd asks a question. Because I want you to have this picture of Jesus' large extended family in your mind. I mean, large nuclear family in your mind. The crowd asks, 
where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Right, they're talking about Jesus. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So, so Jesus had two earthly parents, and he had at least six brothers and sisters. And that meant he grew up experiencing all the things that we do in family life. Sometimes his brothers and sisters would get terribly sick. Sometimes his brothers and sisters would have fought. I mean, like, read the reality of life back into the Bible. This, this is an actual family. Uh, sometimes his brothers and sisters would have lied. You know, children do that sometimes. And Jesus would have had to figure out what was the right thing for him to do as a brother when he knew that one of his brothers or sisters had lied in relationship both to his, his brother or sister, but also to his parents and to his God. Jesus was probably falsely accused of things. You know, that happens in life too. And um, even though he never did anything wrong, uh, undoubtedly people would have accused him of doing things wrong from time to time. Perhaps that helped him prepare for getting older when religious leaders would regularly accuse him of doing things that were wrong. Now, of course, Jesus would have also known the joys of family life. He would enjoy trips to the temple. Uh, the family would have gone there and worshipped their God together. And then they would have enjoyed delicious barbecue together in the temple courts. I mean, that must have been fantastic. Uh, he would have played with his brothers and sisters in the fields during the first warm days of spring. He would have held his younger sisters in his arms and watched them smile. Right? And he would have enjoyed, undoubtedly, helping his younger brothers and sisters learn new things. And there probably would have been times when he would have re rejoiced with his father, when his father completed some particularly impressive construction job, and he would have just rejoiced with his father in that, even as he began to learn the trade. Please realize that Jesus had a nuclear family. He had an extended family with lots of cousins and so on too, but he experienced all the things that we do. One of the wonders of the incarnation is that Jesus was made like us in every way except for sin. Jesus knew all the joys and stresses of family life because Jesus had a human family. And with these joys, there would come responsibilities. And at the very top of those responsibilities would have been a commandment that Almighty God had directly written into stone tablets. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land. There are two implications from this morning's passage, which, while not initially important for understanding the passage, uh, I believe are of some interest to us. Uh, first of all, almost all commentators mention the fact that Joseph isn't named here. Right? His mother and his brothers. And so they assume Joseph must be dead by now. And that's actually a pretty good assumption, but it's not a necessary assumption. Joseph, after all, could be out doing some building project while Jesus' mother and some of his brothers, perhaps, by the way, some of his sisters, that, that term brothers here would have been used inclusively for most men and women, had gone out to see him. Nevertheless, we do know that at the very end of Jesus' life, which is just a couple years away, that Joseph is dead. 
Jesus, after all, commends his mother Mary to John, that John will care for her. And, and he certainly wouldn't have done that if Joseph was still alive. So it's quite likely that Joseph is actually dead by this time, and he may have died even somewhat earlier. Second, as most of you know, um, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary remained perpetually a virgin throughout her entire life. And one obvious problem with that doctrine, that teaching, is what do you do with all the brothers and sisters in this passage? And so throughout history, those who've wanted to hold to a perpetual uh, virginity of Mary, they've come up with two lines of argument. Um, first of all, there are those who suggest that the brothers and sisters of Jesus are actually his cousins. And it does turn out that the Greek term for brothers can mean that. It can be used that way. But I want to add that that would be a very rare usage, and that Greek, in fact, has very specific terms, one for cousin and one for relative, and those are very commonly used. Right? So already you're out stretching for something, say it could be used this way, even though it's not commonly done. It would be much more natural in both Matthew and Mark to understand the terms to mean biological brothers in a nuclear family. Uh, for one thing, Jesus would have had more than four cousins. You've got to think about how these large families are intertwined. He would have had a lot of cousins. And don't you think if the crowd was going to point out to Jesus' cousin, they would have named his most famous cousin John the Baptist. It's kind of weird they leave John out, who's famous throughout the land, and, and, and just name these four. Right? So again, it seems like it makes better sense to take these brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, as being members of our Lord's nuclear family. Uh, it also, uh, while you can use the term brothers to refer to cousins, uh, that term is really almost never used with sisters, and we're told that Jesus has sisters. So that's really problematic. Um, the second approach is to argue that the brothers and sisters of Jesus were, in fact, his brothers and sisters, uh, but they were from Joseph's first marriage. So now we're postulating something that's absolutely not in the passage, that Joseph must have been married before, had a whole bunch of children who are, in fact, Jesus' half-brothers and sisters, because they are the children of Joseph. Not only is there zero biblical evidence for such a view, it has two additional problems. Uh, first, assuming that Joseph waited for a year or two uh, after his supposed first wife dies before he, he gets betrothed to Mary, and remembering that Mary would have been very young, um, Joseph's older children would have been almost as old as Mary was. After all, he had at least six, there's at least six brothers and sisters, and I want to argue almost certainly seven, uh, because I think he has to have at least three sisters. Now, that is technically possible, but in first century Judaism, that would be really strange behavior, right? That is not a common thing that was done in Judaism. It was actually more common in other parts of the Roman Empire. Furthermore, it's difficult to read the narrative from Luke when Luke is telling us of Joseph and Mary traveling to Bethlehem while Mary is pregnant. And I don't know about you, but I wonder why he wouldn't mention that they actually had another six or seven children with them. Uh, that, that just doesn't work for me. Second, as a number of scholars point out, if Jesus has four older brothers, it's hard to see how he can be the heir that should, should sit on David's throne. 
right? Now, I want to say that's not a slam-dunk argument. So when all these things you're saying, it's really unlikely. God, after all, has a, uh, a pattern sometimes in the Old Testament of subverting expectations about the oldest inheritance. But that is actually how the line of David should work. It should be the oldest son who's still alive who becomes the next king. You put all that together, and it just makes sense to realize that Joseph and Mary had, yes, sex, and they had more children. It actually does lead to one thing that's kind of important. The reason why that view developed of Mary's perpetual virginity is because people in the early church, some of them, had a wrong understanding of sexual relations. They thought that sexual relations were intrinsically sinful, and they didn't want to attribute this sinful activity to Mary, the beloved mother of Jesus. But of course, as you open up your Bibles, you discover that rather than being sinful, sexual relations are a gift. They're created by the Lord, and they're a gift to husbands and wives. Let me be very clear about that. Only in marriage, but it's a gift for husbands and wives that tangibly binds them together. Right? It's not, by the way, just physical. The physical activity of the sexual union binds people together in their covenant relationship. Uh, in fact, um, Paul will make clear in 1 Corinthians that ordinarily, there, there's, there's, reason, there's other reasons, but ordinarily couples should not abstain from sexual relations for things like we're going to fast from this for prayer. They should only do that for a limited period of time and then come back together again. So I, I think the natural thing to take here is, is that Jesus had an extended family and that Joseph and Mary had many children together. As a faithful Jewish son, Jesus would have had a responsibility to honor and care for his mother and actually to help with his younger siblings. And this responsibility would be all the more evident if Joseph's father had already passed away. Right? He had responsibilities toward his mother and responsibilities toward his siblings. Verse 46. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Now, if you have an English Standard Version, that's the translation we're using, you may have noticed there's no verse 47. Actually, you probably would have noticed it more if you were following along in the NIV or the New King James Version or the New American Standard Bible or the Holman Standard Bible or pretty much any other modern translation of the Bible while I was reading the passage. There's no verse 47 in the ESV. It's actually in the footnotes. If you looked down at your footnotes in your Bible, you'll, you should see uh, that it's there. The translators of the ESV put this verse in the footnotes because they don't believe that it was in the original. But I do... So I want to read this verse to you, and he just explained just a little bit about it. The verse reads, Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. Now, as you can tell, verse 47 and verse 46 contain the same information. Right? First, we're told that they're outside, and then we're told that someone comes to Jesus and tells that information. My guess is that's why the English Standard Version says that that was added. Now, I want you to know that this verse is definitely in Mark. So there's no doubt that it happened. The way that Jesus came to know that his mother and his, his brothers were outside is someone came and told him that information. And since we know that it happened, and since this information is almost the same information in verse 46, there's not a great deal at stake. 
you do not need to go home and worry about whether or not verse 47 is in the original or not. Uh, but with the majority of translations and the majority of scholars, I think it is, and I think it's actually helpful for us to see that for two reasons. Accepting verse 47 as original helps us in these two small ways. First, it helps make sense of verse 48, where Jesus responds to a specific individual, presumably the man in verse 47, who tells him this news, that his mother and his brothers are outside. But second, it reiterates that our Lord's biological family is outside. Uh, that, that, that repetition of that language is helpful because I don't think that Matthew is simply trying to convey that they're physically outside. That's true. But, but, but he's saying, look, his mother and brother are physically outside, and I want you to realize they're actually outside of Jesus' inner circle, even though they're her, his uh, biological relatives. Right? Who's on the inside in the kingdom of God? Well, according to Jesus, those on the inside are those who follow him, those who trust him, those who do their father's will. And even his natural mother and brothers, for whom he had great affection, they're on the outside until they too come and trust and follow Jesus. Now, it's hard to figure out what's going on in Mary's mind, but we know actually from other passages that none of his brothers believe in him until after he's raised from the dead. Of all human relationships, none can be as important as the family relationship to Jesus that comes from being his disciple. As Jeffrey Gibbs points out, although Jesus does not rebuke or overturn natural family ties, he does subordinate them as he has already intimated in his teaching to the twelve. Uh, if you've been with us for a while, you know that Jesus has already told the twelve that their own families are going to hate them because they cling to Jesus. But he gave them the good news that as his disciples, they're going to get new families, right? New homes to live in, new families who love him as part of the one extended family, which is the church. Nevertheless, we ought not to pass too quickly over the expectations of Jesus, I mean on Jesus, the expectations for Jesus to go out of his way to accommodate the wishes of his biological family, and particularly his mother, would have been very strong in first century Judaism. And that was just a given. You needed to do that. And after all, God had made that one of the Ten Commandments. And even in our own day, in America, um, there are still a lot of obvious connections where you're expected to do things for your biological relatives. But it was much stronger in Jesus' day. So what would Jesus do when he is told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak with you? Well, Jesus responds with a question. Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And then our Lord answers his own question. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother, and my brothers, and my sisters. Right? Do you get how radical that is? Jesus is saying, I have two families. One by biology, and another by God's grace. And by implication, the one that is his family by God's grace 
is his more important family. As R.T. France points out, Jesus is putting into practice what he taught his disciples back in chapter 10, verse 37, that even the most important earthly ties cannot be allowed to stand in the way of loyalty to and the kingship of God. Uh, most of the reactions to Jesus in chapter 11, and especially in chapter 12, have been pretty negative. I mean, what we see is people rejecting Jesus. Uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees have even accused Jesus of being in league with Beelzebul, that is with the devil. And Jesus has warned them. He said, look, you're coming up right up to the brink here. You're, you're, you're on the verge of committing a sin that will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. In fact, what we looked at last week was Jesus said, you know, the Ninevites, those, those horrible Assyrians, the Ninevites, and the Queen of Sheba are going to rise up to condemn this generation because you are an adulterous and wicked generation. So on the day of judgment, those, those Gentiles are going to rise up and condemn you because you're not listening to me. And yet at the end of the chapter, we discover that Christ's ministry is bearing some fruit. There are disciples there. They are not perfect disciples. I don't really need to add, and neither are we. They were not perfect disciples, but they were genuine disciples. And Jesus puts a gesture toward them as they sit at his feet listening. And he says, here is my brother. Here are my sisters. Here is my mother. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Our Lord's declaration of his true disciples being not only his brothers, but also his mothers and sisters is actually quite important. But please don't, don't skip over that. It's not just a generic thing about family members. It really helps us. First, it makes clear that Jesus is not simply gesturing to his 12 disciples. It's not, it's not these 12 who are my family now that are traveling around with me. He's including a broad, broader group, including women. Now, second, don't miss the fact he's including women. Uh, we might take that for granted today. You know, in the church, uh, more than half the people in the church are women. Um, I think our church is actually pretty evenly balanced, but that's odd. More than half the people in the church, at least in the Western world, are women. And so we take that for granted. But first century Pharisees didn't have women as disciples. Jesus does. Okay. For one thing, that means that male chauvinism has absolutely no place in the church. Jesus says, full members of my family, my sister, and even my mother. And third, that actually brings us back to this, this issue of the Roman Catholic Church trying to elevate Mary to this um, really utterly unique role among other human beings. Uh, there are Roman Catholics that have been flirting with the idea of calling Mary co-redemptrix of Jesus. But you can't fit in Jesus saying, you know, those sitting at my feet are my disciples. That, that, that they're like my mother. That doesn't fit with Mary having an a, um, absolutely unique role. She does have a unique role. She is the only one who is Theotokos, the one who, who gave birth to the Son of God, right? So she is unique in that sense. But in terms of the eternal family of God, she does not have a role of headship over the family as Roman Catholics frequently seek to put her. Now, while we do need to rule out mistaken ideas that have risen 
in church history, um, please don't let that cause you to miss the big picture. Jesus was not trying to rule out later mistakes when he explained this, uh, this truth to his people. He was trying to pronounce the great and glorious news that when he came into this world to save sinners, he didn't do so as a distant superhero. So that he would accomplish something great for you, you'd get the benefit, and he would stand off at a distance. Rather, Jesus came into this world to save sinners, to create a new humanity that would be his new family. Not go because you're free, like a judge might pronounce someone innocent, but you've been declared in the right, you've been adopted, come and embrace me because I love you with an everlasting love. Jesus came to create a new humanity, a new humanity that will be formed in a new, new family with Jesus himself as both the center and the head. Now what does this family photo of our Lord's new family look like? Jesus says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It's not everyone in the crowd. right? One scholar puts it like this. It is not the ambivalent crowds nor relatives according to their natural relationship to him, his brothers and sisters, with whom he was raised in Nazareth, nor even his own mother who gave birth to him, but only and all those who are his disciples who are members of his family. You need to mark that in your thinking. That's an important truth. Now, in many cultures, that would be a very disturbing reality. Uh, by the way, I've had many times in my life people say things to me about, uh, you know, if someone's religion should not interfere with the relationships with their family members. And I have to say, well, go read the New Testament, right? That's not God's plan. Now, thanks be to God, God normally works through families. We talk about covenant children growing up in the faith. That's a wonderful blessing. But it is not the universal rule for everybody, and we must prioritize our relationship to Jesus Christ over everything else. In Jesus' day, one's individual identity was inextricably linked to the household group to which an individual belonged. Uh, you know, in America, uh, the first question adults ask each other is, what do you do for a living? Um, people didn't ask that in the ancient world. By the way, people don't do that in many parts of the world today, like in Africa. What, what they ask is, whose family you're from? Right? Which is, by the way, not a bad question to ask. But it reminds us that people's identity was wrapped up in who's your father, who's your mother, who are your brothers and sisters, right? Um, and Jesus is saying, well, there's something more important than that. It's whether or not God is your father in heaven. Even in America, where we tend to believe that everyone can just reinvent themselves and then reinvent themselves again, there are still meaningful expectations about how individuals connect with and support their biological families. Uh, so that's a challenge, but I think we actually have a bigger challenge in America, and that's how loosely we define the term Christian. Uh, you know, when the pollsters go out, they do this, but I think that most Americans do this too. Uh, how do you determine whether or not someone's a Christian? They say they are, right? Self-identity. You know, they raise their hand and say, yeah, Christian, sure, why not? Or they say, what do you think? I'm, I'm not a communist, right? I mean, that was more common 30 years ago, but I would hear that. I'm not a communist, I'm a Christian. Like, those are the two alternatives. 
And so the pollsters will tell you that there are 210 million Christians in the United States of America. Now sadly, the actual number of people that are doing their father's will is vastly smaller than that. Now, of course, God doesn't tell us who in fact has been regenerated. We don't have a, you know, a counter somewhere. But it should be obvious that two out of three of your neighbors are not following Jesus Christ. Right? They don't love him first. It's actually a very, very small number. Jesus is not talking about those who raise their hands and say, yeah, Christian, sure, why not? Jesus says that his family consists of those who do the will of his Father who is in heaven. So we have to ask what that means. What does it mean to do the will of Jesus' Father who is in heaven? You can see how that's an absolutely vital question. For those who do the will of the Father, and only those who do the will of the Father, are identified by Jesus as his brothers and his sisters and his mother. So what does it mean to do the will of the Father who is in heaven? Well, first and foremost, it means trusting in and following Jesus. You cannot have God as your Father if you do not have Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Um, that's so important, I'm going to say that again. You cannot have God as your Father if you do not have Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Uh, you'll recall the time in it's recorded in the Gospel according to John when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and um, his disciples go across the lake in a boat by himself. Jesus says, well, I'll walk. Um, and, and then they realize he's not there and the crowds, they get in their boats and they chase Jesus across the lake. Right? And then they start having this dialogue with each other and Jesus is pressing them. And they ask Jesus, what must we do that we're doing the works of God? That's actually a really good question, right? What must we do that we will be doing the works of God? Do you remember Jesus' answer? Jesus says, this is the will of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. That is at the very heart of doing the Father's will. And until you trust in Jesus, you can't do God's will at all. But that's not all that Jesus means, right? It is what Jesus means, but it's not everything that Jesus means. In the context of the gospel, according to Matthew, it clearly involves the Sermon on the Mount. But his disciples are called to live differently. Right? What does God call us to do? He calls us to be salt and light in this world. No, no, you are not perfectly salt and light. Neither am I. But are you truly salt and light? You've got to press this question on yourself. Am I doing my Father's will not just I identify as a Christian, but does Jesus identify me as a Christian? Are you salt? Enlighten this world. See, believing in Jesus is not an alternative to leading a transformed life. Believing in Jesus is the path to a transformed life that glorifies God. The Father's will for our lives, according to Jesus is that we would be salt and light in this world. And as I say, we'll never do this perfectly on this side of glory. Yet by the grace of God, we have begun to genuinely serve Christ in this way. If not, then we're not saved. Or to use the language of this passage, we are not yet Christ's brothers and sisters. 
Now, this short passage has an importance in the Christian life, which is far greater than its brevity might suggest. It functions as a rebuke to people in his own age, and I want to suggest to people throughout history. It's a rebuke and a warning to anyone who might imagine themselves to be related to Jesus on the basis of anything else other than Jesus' own call for us to follow him. Follow him in faith, by the way. We're not talking about following him by, by doing everything that he does, but by trusting him and therefore following him. Jesus does not intend for us to reject our natural family relations or to neglect our family duties, but to place them in all things in their proper place, which is in subordination to God and his will for our lives. The Lord of the Sabbath is also the Lord over our human relationships. We know that God can raise up from stones children of Abraham. That very same God has taken people from every tribe, tongue, and language who started out with hard hearts, and he's given us new hearts and bound us together into his family. The new family that is centered on Jesus Christ. And the question this morning is, what about you? Is that you? Are you a brother or sister of Jesus Christ? Do you know that? Because not perfectly, but truly, by God's grace, you are beginning to do your Father's will, who is in heaven. To do the Father's will is centered on faith in Jesus Christ. Please don't miss that. But genuine faith always results in a transformed life. As the author of Hebrews so vividly puts it, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of that place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promises in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Beloved, that is your city, and this is your family, if you trust in Jesus and do the will of your Father, who is in heaven. Amen.